attacked at an Airbnb. It is horrifying. Uh, there was blood everywhere. The assault that startled neighbors and why the host is facing charges. Fire hazard in your home. This is a significant increase in the fires we've had. A new warning about lithium batteries and the explosive role they've played in recent fatal fires. And pushback against logging protesters. Their actions have no impact in terms of government decision-making or government policy. The rush hour confrontation with angry drivers that escalated quickly. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening, I'm Chris Galis. Thanks for joining us. A Vancouver man is charged with aggravated assault after allegations of a horrifying attack in a Kitsilano apartment building. As Kristen Robinson reports, his alleged victims were two women who had rented an Airbnb. I don't know what happened uh, with him and, and these specific two young ladies, but he flipped on them uh, in a very, very violent way. It was a terrifying wake-up call in this Kitsilano apartment building. Saad Mustafa says he witnessed his neighbor allegedly turn on his Airbnb guests. It is horrifying. There was blood everywhere. 3 a.m. on May 27th, Mustafa says he heard frantic female screams and a man yelling. He was pushing the girl against the wall and I heard banging against the wall. He was saying, why did you push my cat? His gut instinct told him to get up and have a look. Mustafa says he opened his door to a horrific scene in the hallway. She appeared to have a stab wound in the neck or neck area. It was covered with a white uh, long scarf or shawl. Um, and she, was, uh, she was on the floor lying on her back and she was uh, bleeding uh, very, very badly. Uh, there was another uh, young lady who was uh, pinned to the wall um, and being threatened by a knife. Mustafa rushed to grab his phone and called 911 while the attacker was still armed. But I was yelling at him to drop the knife. Startled, he says the suspect left through a side door. In the seconds before emergency crews arrived, Mustafa says he stood watch, making sure the seriously injured girl kept pressure on her throat. The wound was in the neck, and uh, that automatically means the clock is ticking. Fortunately, he says, police and paramedics managed to save her once the suspect was arrested. There three police officers with guns drawn uh, approaching his door, um, and uh, he opened, and it was him, and they pinned him to the floor. 32-year-old Arvin Pasha has since been charged with one count of aggravated assault involving two alleged victims. This was very surprising to me. Airbnb says incidents like this are exceptionally rare, and when they do happen, immediate action is taken to support guests. In this case, it says that has included a full refund, as well as support with flights and other expenses. The host has been removed from our platform, and we stand ready to support Vancouver police in their investigation. Prior to knowing that they survived, I was a mess. Have I done enough? Should I done more? Why didn't I do more? Pasha remains in custody pending a psychiatric assessment. None of the allegations has been tested in court. The fact that uh, everybody came out of this uh, alive is a huge relief. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A warning now about the dangers of some lithium batteries after a rash of fatal fires. In fact, battery faults are the number one cause of fire deaths in Vancouver so far this year. Krista Dow is live with more on this. And Krista, Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services is so concerned they want people to know about this danger. 
Uh, yeah, Chris, Vancouver Fire are sounding the alarm tonight. If you own an e-bike, an e-scooter, or use lithium-ion batteries, you need to be safe. Now, already five of the fire Five of the seven fire-related deaths so far this year have been linked to lithium-ion batteries. Now, just for reference, last year we saw five fire-related deaths in total. So that breaks down to about 70% of deaths. It's to blame for this fire over the weekend at the Empress Hotel caused by a battery exploding. One man died trying to escape. And in Vancouver's West End, one person died from a fire caused by lithium-ion battery that was purchased online. An e-scooter or bike had been charging there. And then in East Vancouver earlier, three people from three generations killed in a house fire. The culprit, a lithium-ion battery phone charger. Now, the warning from Vancouver Fire tonight, don't modify the batteries or stack them for a faster charge. Avoid cheap knockoffs and charge them safely. With where we're sitting right now, we're in big trouble, right? We need to educate. We need to protect and we need to save lives, and it's something we are committed to doing in Vancouver. Now, it's not uh, just major fires that we're seeing, Chris. It's also minor ones causing injury and damage. Vancouver Fire says they saw a 500% increase from 2016. And the concern now with these pop this popularity growing for e-bikes and e-scooters that they might see more of these calls. Chris. So many of those devices out there. All right, thanks for the warning. Chris Dow reporting for us in Vancouver. The RCMP Major Crimes Unit in the Okanagan is investigating a suspicious death near Oliver. Police were called early Sunday morning to a home in the 1000 block of Pine Ridge Drive on the Osuyus Indian Band property. A 61-year-old man was found with gunshot wounds and died at the scene. At this point, police don't think the shooting was a random incident, but there is no word on motive. Investigators are looking for any witnesses or nearby video surveillance. The trial of a Dutch man accused of harassing and extorting B.C. teen Amanda Todd before she took her own life heard today from a police officer who's been flown in from the Netherlands. As Romina Dea reports, he was part of a critical raid in the investigation into Aidan Coben. Two years after 15-year-old Amanda Todd killed herself in Port Coquitlam, 10 officers with the DNP, Dutch National Police, raided a vacation home in a bungalow park in the Netherlands. Lieutenant Eric Verstraten flew in from overseas to testify at this trial. Verstraten, ex-military, is with the Open Source Intelligence Division of the DNP. He was working with the child abuse investigation team at the time of the raid. He is expected to give evidence about the items seized in Bungalow 55, located in Derusa Park in the town of Oysterwick. The DNP conducted a covert operation of this bungalow about a month before 43-year-old Aidan Coban was arrested. This case comes down to identity. Crown trying to prove Coban, a Dutch citizen, is behind 22 fake user accounts used to sextort Amanda Todd into performing pornographic acts online between 2009 and 2012. The disturbing content sent to family, classmates and school staff, says Crown. Defense suggesting there's no link between Coban and the online extortionist. A lot of information can be manipulated on the Internet. There must be proof who was behind the messages to Amanda, says defense. Romina Dea, Global News.
More than a dozen people have been arrested and one person hospitalized in another series of highway blockades by anti-logging protesters in B.C. As Kylie Stanton shows us, the disruptions left lower mainland commuters on Vancouver Island as well as ferry travelers very frustrated and angry. Traffic stops and horns blare. Just kilometers away from the Swartz Bay Ferry Terminal, frustrated commuters have had enough. One driver in particular took it upon himself to try and dismantle the blockade. This is a non-violent protest. Camilla Ruiz caught the encounter on video. It shows a man grabbing a board that appears to be attached to a ladder structure. A protester perched on top doesn't move. But minutes later, this. And the person at the top of it, about 20 feet, just falls flat on the ground. He doesn't move after that. The protester was taken to a hospital for treatment. The incident is now under investigation. At the same time, officers moved in, arresting the demonstrators and removing the blockade. Just one of three sites taken simultaneously Monday morning in the name of saving old growth. This is a, a achieved through disrupting the public, and this is also engaging the public. But at the same time, enraging them. The center lane remains closed. Traffic snarled in Vancouver as protesters tried to take over the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. Our cameras caught a man with a bike lock around his neck attached to a steering wheel as Vancouver police tried to free him. Be gentle! Five arrests were made, four vehicles seized. At the Massey Tunnel, a woman went after a protester blocking the southbound lane with a ladder. And while she eventually made her way through, others were left to wait it out. We'll not allow those critical pieces of infrastructure to be blocked and we'll do what we can uh, to prevent these blockades from happening. But when you start holding everyday, everyday citizens hostage because of your belief system, that's completely unfair. The protesters plan to continue with these disruptions until there's an end to all old growth logging in the province. But each side is standing firm. We are making our decisions based on the, uh, the science and the work done by the Ministry of Forests. They're accomplishing absolutely nothing. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A jaw-dropping new number shows how stressed out many people are about rising interest rates. According to a survey by Manulife conducted in mid-April, nearly one in four homeowners say they'll have to sell their home if interest rates go up any further. The Bank of Canada has boosted its key lending rate to 1.5% with further hikes expected to battle continuing inflation. The survey also found that two-thirds of Canadians do not view home ownership as affordable in their own community. The provincial government promised an ICBC relief rebate back in March to help you cover the unexpected jump in gas prices. Since then, prices at the pump have continued to break records. And as Richard Zussman explains, many drivers in B.C. are still waiting for that one-time payment. A long wait for a rebate. ICBC is getting them out. They are getting them out. And it will be uh, uh, done by, uh, by mid-July. Back in March, the B.C. government promised $110 to all ICBC customers and $160 to commercial policyholders in a form of an ICBC gas rebate. But as of now, just 25,000 people signed up for and received a direct deposit. Another 573,000 have been rebated if they paid by credit card. But 2.9 million people, more than 80% of customers, are still waiting. 
including all of those who paid by debit, cash, check, or payment plan. Just on Monday, the first 54,000 checks processed. The latest rebate, which is going out right now, was intended to provide uh, some additional relief, and that's what it's doing. Since the province announced the rebate in March, prices have steadily climbed for gas. From $1.86.9 per liter in March to $1.98.5 at the end of April to $2.22.9 in mid-May and hitting a peak of $2.33 per liter last week. Prices now nearly 50 cents more per liter than when the rebate was announced. The fact that we now see gas uh, almost 50 cents a liter higher than when they first announced that there was going to be a rebate check, I think shows you how just how slowly this government has acted uh, on even the, the smallest of measure to try to bring some relief to people. The BC government has so far refused to consider putting a pause on taxes at the pump, something they've done in Alberta. Another thing that could be considered, the federal government could create a tax on excessive profit for oil and gas companies. Oil and gas companies are recognizing that there is a limit of how much profiteering they can do in a time like this. And gas prices are expected to keep climbing, meaning eventually when your rebate does arrive, it will fill even less of this tank. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, with gas prices as they are right now, it's probably not a huge surprise. Some thieves are stealing fuel and right from vehicles. Global News has spoken with at least four people who've had their tanks drilled and the fuel drained away. A Kelowna repair shop owner estimates he lost upwards of 160 litres of fuel in broad daylight. The thief calmly filled a jerry can and when he ran out of room, he used a bucket to continue. It was one individual, he drilled a hole in one tank, set a jerry can, then he drove over to the other truck, drilled a hole in that one. He spent probably 45 minutes here, right in broad daylight, didn't really seem too stressed about it. When the jerry can was full, he stuffed another bucket under and poured it into his tank until he was done what he was doing, and then just left for the rest of it to just drain on the ground. North Okanagan RCMP say they've had 15 reports of fuel theft since the beginning of March. They say anecdotally, it does appear this type of crime is on the rise. Coming up, protecting a vulnerable floodplain. But $2.8 billion is a lot of money. Sure is. Abbotsford City Council ponders a solution to its flood problem, but the bill is going to be huge. Also, new revelations about fake nurse Bridget Clarue, what the latest legal filing says about her later. Plus, something very important missing from the museum in Creston. Part of the reason... It's getting a major makeover, including students. That's coming up. But right now, Abbotsford is being forced to take steps to address what many call its Achilles heel, aging infrastructure that could fail again and allow another devastating flood like the one last fall. Grace Key is live with more on the plan being considered. And Grace, obviously there is no easy solution to this. No, in fact, you know, originally there were four options, but the preferred one, the one that Abbotsford City Council just voted on a few hours ago, this is actually a hybrid of three of those four options. Now, there's still a long way to go to see all of this through, and there will be more consultation with farmers. But as you can imagine, certainly a lot of the farmers are concerned about how this could impact them. 
When David Russenberger's grandfather bought Alpina Dairy Farm back in 1964, he liked how it was on high land and safe from floods. The decision has paid off, but now the family is learning the property could be in the designated floodway area. It's hard because it's, uh, yeah, people have been here for generations and this is, this is home. I, I've moved uh, three times in my life and each of them are 20 feet, so... Back in November, floodwaters devastated parts of the city and the Sumas Prairie. Four options for flood mitigation were later presented. After public feedback, a hybrid plan was introduced. That includes a new relocated dike along the north side of Highway 1, new dikes through Sumas Prairie and the Sumas First Nation, upgraded Barrowtown pump station and several new pump stations. The cost has yet to be determined. Monday afternoon, Abbotsford City Council voted in favor of the plan. Priorities are to avoid infrastructure damage, preserve agricultural land and food security, and minimize any impact to residences and businesses. If they're in a floodway, they would not get a building permit. If they wanted to build a new house or a new barn on a floodplain, uh, there's other ways to mitigate that. They might raise the building, um, and they can still farm. The only time when this will be impacted is if we get water coming across the border. I'm very nervous that it feels like the thing generations have worked towards can be signed off by somebody with a pen. The first phase of the project includes a Sumas River pump station and replacement work along the Sumas River dike. Staff will now tally up the cost and prepare submissions to senior governments. So the cost estimates for those original four options, they did range from $209 million to $2.8 billion for this preferred option. The one that just passed, it certainly is expected to be on the higher range. Chris? And that is really just one part of the recovery for an entire region. Thanks very much. We appreciate that. Grace Key reporting in Abbotsford. So we'll bring in Keith Baldry now to talk about more of the flood damage, namely the repairs mm -hmm. to Highway 1 that stretch over... 100 or so kilometers. That's a big project. Where's the money coming from to complete those repairs? Yeah, the numbers are actually jaw-dropping. The cost associated with not repairing but rebuilding so much infrastructure, much of which was built in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It's a hugely expensive and time-consuming effort. It's going to play out over a number of years. Here's some of the key numbers. Uh, so Highway 1 is going to be widened and raised, and that's going to cost, according to one estimate, about $5 billion. Who's paying for it? Largely the federal government. They're going to be funding 90% uh, of rebuild costs when they kick in at over $85 million. The feds have already committed $5 billion and that number will grow assuredly. Final bill could easily exceed $15 billion. I lowballed that, Chris, because if you've got $5 billion for Highway 1, and, of course, you remember the reports a few months ago, $9 billion required to uh, make all the dikes acceptable. Uh, put those two numbers again. That would eat up that $15 billion there. We're not even talking about Highway 8 yet uh, and uh, Highway 5, for example. So much damage last November, it's going to cost an enormous amount of money, and it's going to take a long time to make the fixes that are going to be required. And we are looking at more rain in the forecast in some regions right now. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much, Keith. We'll continue to cover that for sure. Meantime, other areas of the province are nervously watching water levels right now. We'll bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon for more. And Christy, uh, what areas are most at risk now of potential flooding? 
Well, Chris, the town of Sparwood has just been under issued a local state of emergency. Uh, there's a number of areas in that region now under evacuation alert. There's also an evacuation alert for the six mile area north of Nelson. Now, according to the BC River Forecast Center, imminent flooding is possible in the Elk Valley area. You can see it highlighted in red on the map. All other areas highlighted in orange have the potential but are just under a flood watch at this time. But it's all because of a massive low pressure center that's not only impacting BC but Alberta, Saskatchewan as well. And we are expecting potential up to 80 millimeters of rain, parts of Alberta up to 125. Thankfully, it is going to ease for many parts of our province tomorrow afternoon, but I'll show you which areas could continue to see it into Wednesday. Back to you. All right, we'll check in later. Thanks very much, Christy. Also just ahead, a Google Maps fail that has potential customers going in circles. It will bring you in the middle of the pool at Second Beach. Consumer Matters helps a local entrepreneur find a solution in his battle with the tech giant. Plus, a race gone wrong. Why the Canadian and U.S. Coast Guards both had to come to the rescue. Traffic is busy but steady in both directions over here at the Patello Bridge, which is some leftover volume southbound on McBride through the Queen's Park stretch. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside the Real Canadian Superstores and Walmarts throughout BC. Find your nearest location at sussexinsurance.com. Open 9 to 9 every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Patello Bridge. The special stories that shape our province, as suggested by our viewers. This is BC with Jay Durant. Real people, real stories. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways, BC owned and operated for 75 years. During the height of the pandemic, many businesses were left battered. But tonight, one Vancouver business owner says his company has taken an additional hit this time from Google, specifically its navigation app. When he exhausted his efforts to fix the problem, he turned to Consumer Matters and Drua for help. And Thanks, Chris. Jerry O'Neill owns Stanley Park horse-drawn tours, and for close to a year, he was asking Google Maps to correct its mistake, a mistake that was costing him customers and money. But you folks. Winnipeg, center of Canada. For 40 years, Jerry O'Neill's business has been a fixture in Vancouver's Stanley Park. Those folks are from England. Very exciting to be here every day. But that excitement has been overshadowed by frustration. For almost a year, Jerry says, he's been trying to get the attention of Google over its navigation app, Google Maps. Actual address here is what? It's 735 Stanley Park Drive. Google Maps has marked Jerry O'Neill's business in the wrong location. Instead of ending up here at 735 Stanley Park Drive, Google Maps takes you. It will bring you in the middle of the pool at Second Beach, which is on the other side of the park, about a mile and a bit from here. A problem impacting his bottom line. It's 20% now, but, but what happened? The people that go back home couldn't find us and say, oh, geez, don't go there. Stanley Park Drive. We decided to see for ourselves. Here we go. We're heading up towards the Rose Gardens, and we really should have gone right back there. We are five minutes away, and uh, it's not looking promising. This is definitely not 735 Stanley Park Drive. 
Jerry says he's contacted Google countless times with no results. We have reached out um, as, as good as you could reach out. So Consumer Matters got in touch with Google on Jerry's behalf, and within a couple of days, the situation was resolved. Google acknowledging and fixing the error. Google stating, we apologize for the inconvenience and frustrations this caused Mr. O'Neill and wish him much success going forward with Stanley Park horse-drawn tours. All right, let's see if this works. Just to be certain, we entered Jerry's business address into Google Maps. It worked. We have success. And Jerry O'Neill? Fantastic, good. Well, he couldn't be happier. We could not have done it. You've, ma- you've moved mountains. Now, Jerry also says now the issue has been resolved. People have stopped calling him, saying they are lost in the park and revenues are up. As for Google, it says it offers a support page where you can let them know if something on a map is incorrect. However, in Jerry's case, as we just saw, getting a fix to his issue wasn't that easy. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Success. Love to see it. Thanks very much, Ann. Coming up, undercover embarrassment. New developments after allegations of a training course went sideways. How many lower mainland officers are under investigation? And dramatic video of a West Coast rescue and how a boat race ended for some participants almost immediately. Good evening. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel and traffic is steady in both directions. Just keep in mind though, there is uh, ongoing Nickel-Meckel River Bridge replacement much further south on Highway 99 in Surrey and that's causing some pretty big delays. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Global News continues to follow developments in an investigation into troubling incidents at a police training course. Municipal officers were learning about undercover work when the course content allegedly became obscene, with at least one officer allegedly defecating on another. Catherine Urquhart reveals how many officers are under investigation and who's conducting it. The Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner says that it has initiated an investigation into the conduct of 19 police officers from numerous different policing agencies. Abbotsford, Vancouver, New Westminster and Delta. They're from Surrey Police Service, Saanich, Victoria and Metro Vancouver Transit Police. The OPCC says that due to the serious nature of the alleged misconduct and the fact that so many BC agencies are involved, it has employed an infrequently used provision in the Police Act to seek the appointment of one or more special provincial constables to complete this investigation independent of any B.C. police agencies. The Independent Investigation Unit of Manitoba is the investigating agency. West Vancouver Police Chief John Lowe is the discipline authority. The OPCC says the nature of the allegations includes serious and concerning conduct that was performed in front of course supervisors and other course participants. The conduct was reported by RCMP members who were there as observers. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. 
BC's predator attack team is in Pemberton trying to find a bear that charged at and bit a woman this morning. The woman was walking along a popular trail just after 9.30 in the morning when the attack happened. She was treated for her injuries and is expected to recover. Conservation officers are examining the site of the attack and interviewing the victim. They have closed that particular trail and are asking the public to stay away from it. Officials in Coquitlam have still not been able to identify the source of a solvent dumped into a creek that likely killed hundreds of fish fry. A chemical was dumped or spilled into Booth Creek Saturday evening, and as Jasmine Bala reports, juvenile fish paid a terrible price. Dozens, maybe hundreds of salmon fry belly up in Booth Creek. And all those fish were dead. A strong chemical smell still lingering in the air. I'd seen them, I saw them, excuse me, uh, it's 12 p.m. And there was some kind of spill that killed them that fast. Within six hours, all the fish Annette Boulanger had seen swimming around earlier Saturday, dead. It made me feel sick. I've been watching, uh, I've been here two years. That was our uh, pastime, was watching the fish grow. Another resident called it in, and the city of Coquitlam responded. The fire department arrived first and the engineering team followed, setting up absorbent pads and booms to soak up what they could of the chemical. Fire reporting it was some sort of solvent or thinner. The team went upstream to investigate where it could be coming from, but there was no clear culprit. Salmon are really important to the health of all creeks. Um, they are a keystone species, so they basically feed everything. Everything from other fish to bears to people. This dreamkeeper says fish die off from spills and contamination are happening more and more often. He looks after Stony Creek, where at least 300 fry died last July. The salmon stocks are declining all over the lower mainland and in the uh, everywhere. In the case of Booth Creek, he says it could have to do with materials poured down storm drains. People emptying paint cans down their storm drains, if they, if they don't know what they're doing, they don't realize that that material ends up in the creeks and that material will definitely kill everything that lives in the creek. By now, most of the substance seems to have been caught by the pads and booms. The city says a crew will go out again Tuesday to make sure no more comes through. Jasmine Bala, Global News. The U.S. Coast Guard has released video of a dramatic rescue in the Juan de Fuca Strait earlier today. A gale-force wind warning was in effect when four vessels involved in the race to Alaska got into trouble not long after leaving the start in Port Townsend. Four sailors ended up in the water. Three were rescued by a Coast Guard crew in a helicopter. The fourth person was picked up by a standby safety boat. The rest of the race participants took shelter in nearby islands or returned to the mainland. The race is a grueling 1,200-kilometer odyssey up the inside passage from Washington State to Alaska. More shocking details about that fake nurse who worked in B.C. before she was finally caught. The new information is in response by B.C.'s Provincial Health Services Authority to a class-action lawsuit filed by patients of Bridget Clarue while she worked at B.C. Women's Hospital. The court filing says Clarou was disciplined several times and even suspended once for inappropriate and disrespectful conduct towards both patients and co-workers. Despite that and the fact she had no actual nursing credentials, Clarou worked at the hospital for another six months after the suspension. 
The PHSA denies any responsibility for Clarou's actions. She now has criminal convictions for posing as a nurse in Ontario, Quebec and Alberta and is serving a seven-year sentence. Right now she's awaiting trial in Vancouver for fraud and personation as well. Still to come, a small town museum gets a makeover. Why it's time for a change in Creston and how children are part of a new story that's being written. But first, why the city of Calgary just declared a state of emergency. The city of Calgary is under a state of local emergency from heavy rain falling in the southern part of the province. And I realize that may cause some fear, some anxiety for Calgarians, especially those who went through this in 2013. I can tell you that you're in good hands. We have an incredible team within all our business units who is here to work with us to make sure that we get through this in the best possible way. Environment Canada has issued rainfall warnings for between 75 and 150 millimeters by Wednesday morning in some areas. Calgary's state of local emergency will be in effect for 14 days to allow the city to respond to any flooding. City officials say river levels are significantly lower than they were during the 2013 Great Flood that left at least five people dead and caused billions of dollars in damage. Millions, sorry, millions of dollars in damage uh, across the province. All right, uh, that is a massive weather system that is going to impact parts of our province as well. So uh, we're going to check in with Christy right now for a look at what is to come for us. And uh, yeah, even the risk of snow we heard about yesterday, Christy. Yeah, and there actually is heavy snow falling in areas like Sparwood right now, which is actually good news that this system isn't coming with a massive surge in warmth. If it was, it could be a far greater impact. I want to show you how massive this system is. It really is impacting all of Western Canada right now. It has impacted the the northwestern U.S. as well. Massive flooding with a bridge washed out in the uh, Yellowstone National Park area. You can see the funnel, the southerly flow up into Saskatchewan. We'll be watching Saskatchewan as well over the the next 24 hours. Meanwhile, for our region, we're lucky. We're actually on the western edge. So Okanagan Valley, comparatively far less uh, millimeters of rain expected there. Hardest hit region for our province will be Elk Valley, and that includes Sparwood with 80 millimeters of rain. But you can see that highlight in red there. That's actually a snowfall warning for Palsam Summit to Kootenai Pass. Because it's so cold, we're expecting 15 centimeters of snow there overnight. Again, these are the flood concerns for our region. We are only expecting flood in that one Elk Valley region, but there is potential in all areas highlighted in orange. So here's the timeline. Tonight, heavy rain in southeastern BC. Tomorrow morning, we'll continue to see that along with snowfall for higher elevations. Tomorrow afternoon, though, it eases for much of BC, but the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains will continue to see rainfall even into the latter part of the day tomorrow, and that includes that Elk Valley region. And it's going to be cooler. Look at this, highs of 16, 17 degrees. So that actually is quite a blessing. Meanwhile, for our region, we'll see a few showers overnight, but we're back to sunshine. So fairly nice conditions for our region. Much of the impact will be in southeastern BC. Back to you. Oh, no, wait, hold on. Central windows, weather window. Sorry, I forgot this. Uh, tonight's central weather window comes from the Round Lake area. This is the uh, from Barrie. So Round Lake is just north of Princeton. Gorgeous shot. Thanks to Barry for that one. Back to you, Chris. Barry Selver, thank you very much for that. Beautiful shot around Lake. All right, thank you, Christy. We'll check in now with Squire, who joins us. Just well, the last second. But I'm here. Yes, 
That's all that matters. Doesn't matter when you get here. Mm-mm. The important thing is you're here. Uh, Australia danced its way, and I do mean that, into the World Cup today. This is perfectly legal by the Australian keeper who's uh, line dancing got the Socceroos to Qatar in penalty kicks against Peru. Wow. Also tonight, the Creston Museum re-examines its history with the knowledge of people who've been there all along. Squires here with sports and how sweet it is when there's Canucks news in the offseason. Well, and the Canucks, of course, we all know their history with Swedish players is very good. They've had a lot of great Swedish players and they are on a bit of a Swedish signing spree right now. Of course, their general manager, Patrick Alvin, is from Sweden. They've already brought in forwards Linus Carlson, Nils Amon, and today they signed another Swedish player, defenseman, Philip Johansson, who was given a two-year entry-level contract. Now, he actually was a first-round pick by the Minnesota Wild back in 2018, but the Wild never signed him because they felt he hadn't developed enough of his offensive game after they drafted him, whereas the Canucks signed him because they feel quite the opposite. They think his defensive play has improved enough that he should be given a shot at the NHL. He has been playing in the Swedish League with Frölunda the past two years. Now, a lot of teams in the NHL are interested in signing Russian free agent forward Andrei Kuzmenko. He was never drafted in the NHL. Now he's 26 years old, but he has steadily improved his scoring numbers every year in the KHL, and he was second in league scoring this past season. He has talked to the Canucks before, so he will talk to them for a second time this week. He's also going to talk to the Oilers. Uh, Not only did he have 53 points in 45 games this past season, but in the playoffs he had 14 and 14. He has spent eight seasons in Russia's top league, was at the World Juniors in 2016, but didn't get a point in that tournament. Maybe that's why he wasn't drafted, but teams think he might be a late bloomer. Women's under-18 World Championship gold medal game. It's in Wisconsin. It's Canada and the U.S. No surprise there. Canada gets a power play goal in the first period. Ava Murphy, the puck just finds its way through bodies, and that's the score in the second period now. 1-0 for Canada over the United States. The Whitecaps play in Seattle tomorrow night, which even though the Sounders are a point behind Vancouver in the standings, the Whitecaps would be the underdogs for sure. But since the start of May, the Whitecaps have come back to life like Deadpool with four wins and a draw in their last six MLS games. Yeah, after this all started, it was, it's important that we managed to, to put together a couple of good results and um, not leave it too late, kind of like we did last year. We don't want to put ourselves in that position again. Um, the earlier we can get results, the better. So the longer we can put this, keep this run going, then the better for us. All right, so Peru and Australia trying to get to the World Cup. Winner gets in, loser doesn't. Right before penalty kicks, they change goalies. That's the Australians that change goalies. Andrew Redmayne came in for Matt Ryan. And look how he plays goal in the penalty kicks. He moves around like those those floppy dudes you see at the car Car dealerships. Yeah. The blow-up guys. But it worked. That was the final kick. And Australia won 5-4 in PK. So they're going to the World Cup. Olympic decathlon.
And Damian Warner will be the headliner for the Harry Jerome Track Classic tomorrow at Swangard Stadium. Starts about 4 o'clock. Now, this is the start of a big month of track and field for this area because, of course, the Canadian Championships are in Langley at McLeod from June 22nd to June 26th. But it all starts with the annual Jerome meet. It's Canada's longest-running track and field events. And for nearly four decades, the Harry Jerome Classic has given Canada's best track athletes an opportunity to showcase their talents on home soil. Canadian athletes don't get the opportunity to compete in big competitions at home too often. Uh, we're always having to get on a plane to go to Europe or to Asia somewhere, which is always really cool. But it's, it's never like competing at home in front of your own, uh, your own country. So I uh, always look forward to these opportunities. Damian Warner has competed at the Jerome before, but this is the first time he's entering the competition as an Olympic gold medalist. At this year's meet, the world's greatest athlete will be showcasing his ability in two events at Swangard. It looks like for both the hurdles and the long jump, there's a really good field. So um, for me, anytime I get an opportunity to compete against some of the best in the world for those individual events, I always enjoy that because it brings out the best in me. And last year's competition brought out the best in Regan Yee. The steeplechase runner from Hazleton, B.C. had her sights set on qualifying for the Olympics for the first time in her career. Harry Jerome was my first step towards that goal. I uh, ran a huge PB and was only a second off of the qualifying time, and so that's what that gave me the momentum to, to make that team. She won't have the same level of pressure this year, so she's looking forward to putting on a show for her close friends and family especially since last year's COVID restrictions made things difficult for fans. People weren't actually allowed to be in the stadium, yet they still came out, they brought their lawn chairs, they sat outside the, the fence and cheered for me along the backstretch. Whether an athlete is chasing an Olympic dream or they've reached the pinnacle of their sport, these events remain an educational opportunity. I'm trying a lot of new things in training. I did an altitude camp. I'm lifting heavier in the gym, obviously, you can tell. I try to take what I learned from these individual events back to the decathlon so I could try to be the best that I can be. And these are always great opportunities to practice and opportunities to win and to lose and to learn. I mentioned soccer. I should also mention Canada-Honduras. They're getting ready to play that game. That's a Nations League game. So down in Honduras. Be cheering them on too. Thanks very much, Squire. All right. Just ahead, the Little B.C. Museum with a much bigger story to tell. Sarah McDonald is here with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Sarah? Yeah, Chris, we're keeping an eye on Surrey City Council tonight as councillors debate going back to virtual meetings for their own safety. Plus, a small aircraft crashes in the Pitt River just behind a very busy golf course. We'll have full details. Plus, Golden Ears Park has been closed until Thursday. Find out why tonight at 11. Oh, just when a lot of people want to start getting outside. Thanks very much for that, Sarah. Now, a small museum in southeastern B.C. is taking a big step towards Indigenous reconciliation. The Creston Museum has found an innovative way for elders to share their Indigenous knowledge through the eyes of children. Catherine Urquhart has that story. They're all dancing. And they're looking for the guy with the single feather. An elder from the Lower Kootenai Band shares some of his culture with grade 7 students. A young man... The young lady, 
get together. It's a learning partnership involving the band, a local school, and the Creston Museum. Kids are tasked with decolonizing exhibits by adding indigenous elements to displays. They've taken our little nostalgia about movie theater concession stands and added to it the indigenous perspectives, the, the traditional use of popcorn, and also the impact that modern processed foods have on people's health, especially the health of indigenous people. Another exhibit involves agriculture. One of the things we're adding to it, and I say adding with an emphasis because we don't want to change the exhibits, we're not erasing history, we're not getting rid of something, we're adding some, a new perspective to it, is how that Tanaka have done agriculture. It provides an education that goes far beyond the classroom. It creates a space that people, that the Indigenous knowledge keepers and elders could come and sit with students and talk with them and educate them and, and the students can listen and they can ask questions where it's a safe space and that's what reconciliation is all about. Both sides coming together and creating something new and beautiful from it. I think it was really cool. At first it was a little bit scary knowing that it was going to be here for a long time and doing it a lot. It seemed like a lot, but it actually ended up being really fun and working with the elders was really awesome. This partnership with local Indigenous elders, a success. One that all involved hope will lead to similar projects in the years ahead. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Oh, great story. I have to get out there and visit. All right, last word uh, on weather goes to Christy. A lot of problem areas sort of in uh, B.C., Alberta, Montana, mm -hmm. big, big system. Yeah. Yeah, so I think really all eyes should be on Alberta over the next 24 hours, but it impacts our province, absolutely. Uh, we are watching the Elk Valley area, which is currently under a, a, a flood warning, meaning uh, flooding is uh, expected according to the BC River Forecast Center. Now for our region, we'll see a few showers overnight, but we're back to sunshine tomorrow. So we're certainly in a lucky sort of position with this system, that's for sure. Whereas the southeastern corner of the province will likely continue to see that rainfall until the end of the day tomorrow, although Okanagan Valley will start to see it ease in the afternoon. Back to you. All right, stay safe in those lower flood-prone areas for sure. Thanks for watching, everybody, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.